This is Khat Chronicles, design stories from the Arab world, presented to you in collaboration with Afikra. I am here today with uh, Foundland Collective, uh, and we're going to talk about their practice and a bit about their background and introduce you to their very interesting work. My name is Lauren Alexander, and um, we've been working together as Foundland Collective, together with Ghalia Saraqbi. Um, for the last 10 years, we started working together in 2009. So to introduce Foundan Collective, the two of us, uh, Radia and myself, started working together in 2008-9 when we were just finishing off our master program at the Sandberg Institute in Amsterdam. Um, we kind of discovered that we share the same desire to claim more autonomy in our work and create our own content as designers, so not working for clients and initiating our own projects. So we thought of starting this collaboration. So we started with one exhibition. We created an installation, started with a conversation between us about what do we think about design, what do we think about us coming from different backgrounds, living in the Netherlands, how we position ourselves as designers, what, what we think about the world. That was the start. Um, can you talk about the name? Because, you know, Foundland is a very sexy name. Oh, I'm glad you think it's sexy. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of people ask us about it. Yeah, I don't know how to say explain Yeah, this. I think the first conversations were about... It was related to identity politics as well, like how we felt being in the Netherlands, having quite specific migration stories, both of us, and ending up from South Africa, from Syria, suddenly in the Netherlands, and wanting to talk about our identity within that context. So it was sort of quite literally like a found land, like a new place for us to do this in. Yeah, in a way also, if you think about our approach, we always start a project and we go into a journey of discovery. Like we don't we don't always have like a concrete plan in the beginning. It just comes with, with what we really experience and we meet new people, new things. Uh, we learn a lot. So it's, it's kind of fit with how we, how we work. Your work is kind of somewhere between design and art because it's not commissioned work. It's self-initiated. Yeah, I think for us it was just really important because we discovered that, that we, we have a lot of things to share and also we, we like as people to actually dive in in a more academic or journalistic, let's say, way. Um, this is also fun and great for us. So it's a way of bringing together the skills that we have from the design background, whether mm -hmm. that be more in exhibition design or even in writing or in education, to bring that um, into the projects that we're busy with. Probably um, more or less at the same moment that we were studying and getting into this field, I think other people also started to you become more uh, visible mm -hmm. um, in the sort of design research field, which then, that's true, it's often exhibited or shown within the artistic context, sort of bringing together art and, and design. But I have to say, like, we also are commissioned quite regularly more for an artistic context. Mm. So then there's also somehow the background of design or having to consider the audience, having to consider the funding, the limitations of the exhibition space and the context 
it definitely comes into play even if it's in an artistic background. So that, I think that's also quite important. So you met in, in the Netherlands uh, doing your postgraduate studies and then you founded Foundland Collective. But I would like to backtrack a little bit with you and maybe you can tell me how you started becoming a designer where you studied a little bit about your background before coming to the Netherlands. And I will start with Ralia. I'm originally from Damascus. I was born in Damascus. I lived there until 1999. This is the year where I moved to the Netherlands. Before that, I was always interested in art and being, you know, artists. Uh, I'm not sure if I was like really thinking that I want to be a designer, but f definitely something creative. I was not so good at school, so definitely something with drawing and art. So uh, in 96, I went to the art school in Damascus and the University of Fine Arts. I stayed there for a year and then I decided, well, uh, maybe it's better to, to move to Europe. And I moved in 99 to Holland and I studied my, I, I went to artists, uh, design school in Arnhem in the Netherlands. This is where I completed my bachelor study. And then I went to the Sandberg where I met Lauren. And after that, we both did also postgraduate studies separately. But uh, so this is like kind of my creative background. Yes. So Lauren, <laughs> would you like to tell us also about, um, you grew up in South Africa, which I've visited once and I think it's such a beautiful country. You're so lucky. So maybe you can tell me um, or tell the, the listeners, you know, what made you become a designer, where you studied and what brought you to the Netherlands and so forth. Sure. Um, so I grew up in Cape Town in South Africa and I, my parents and my family still live there. I studied at the University of Stellenbosch which at that time was one of the best places in the country to study graphic design. Um, also with a, a big focus on a craft. And uh, I remember doing typography by hand. Uh, we had a lot of lecturers at that time who were making their own comics. Um, also politically engaged comics as well, which I found really interesting. And that's also why I chose to go there. So I did a four year bachelor degree there. And after I finished there, I started working in an advertising agency in Cape Town, actually as like a, what they call below the line graphic designer, <laughs> um, doing. <laughs> it's a terrible expression. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it was that or making TV ads. So um, it was more like the crafty, detailed um, kind of logos and letterheads and that sort of thing, which I loved. Also, the the ad agency where we worked had all the um, reserve brands, I think it's called. So we had like parties basically every night. So I mean, I had, that's had great. a great time. Um, so then afterwards, I, I I kind of got a little bit bored um, as a twenty two year old. Um, obviously does um, in the agency after a while, mainly with the work I was doing mm. or the possibilities. And so I wanted to do a master program. Um, I applied to do that in the Netherlands and I was lucky to get a scholarship. Actually, they don't offer this scholarship anymore now uh, to foreign students, um, a Dutch scholarship, and I could come to study in the Netherlands. So that uh, is what I did before. And if I think of it now, I think it really influence the way that I think or what um, I like to, to focus on, not so much the advertising part, but um, sort of like scripting stories and thinking about um, 
narratives within design, I think has always been really important for me mm. with a strong focus on language as well. Mm. And now uh, I've been teaching at the Royal Academy of Arts in The Hague and my subject for the last eight years, my, my baby, is interactive media design. And so there we do a lot of, kind of storytelling. Um, and I'm also teaching at a master program now, which is also for me feels quite a natural uh, progression. It's called nonlinear narrative. So you both came to the Netherlands as students and then you decided to stay. So obviously you still live in the Netherlands. Do you live in Amsterdam? Yes. Also, I I, uh, well, I don't live in Amsterdam anymore. I moved to Cairo four years ago. So actually for me, um, I lived in the Netherlands for 14 years. And after that, I decided it's time to move back to the Middle East. I think the events of the Arab Spring really influenced that. I was emotionally involved by that. Um, and I made that decision that um, I need to go back. First, I wanted to go back to Syria, but now it's impossible to go back. So Cairo was my second option. And uh, I'm happy I did that. It's, it's a big change, um, but there is a lot that I feel I can contribute to the design scene there and also like being involved in education. I teach at the American University in Cairo. It's a new design program, but I think um, I have an amazing team I'm working with and we have really like good um, vision about how we could actually establish that program and, and um, make it grow. So it's quite exciting, yeah. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, it's um, a lot of the art schools nowadays, I don't know, definitely in Cairo um, and also probably in the Netherlands tend to be very, the students tend to be very locals, but their teachers tend to be international. Well, in, in my case in The Hague is, is where I've had most of my experience and there you have a very international group of students. Um, I do also really like to have Dutch students in the class as well because I do think it's also important mm. to know where we are and to be situated somehow and to have a, some kind of connection also to what's happening around us. And for you, Ralia, what is the situation like in Cairo, in the American University in Cairo? Well, the situation in Cairo is quite different. Um, I have mostly Egyptian students, no international students, so um, mostly female. Um, we also like have kind of um, focus on lo local issues, uh, on Arabic language. Uh, at the moment, we are also kind of investigating different kind of um, educational material that um, we need maybe to create, um, not always like taking example from the West, uh, not always like taking Swiss design or German design as, as reference. Uh, so this is like teaching in Cairo have a different kind of challenges. Um, also like you are teaching Egyptian students in English, you know, because it's American University, uh, like pushing hard to have like kind of uh, bilingual uh, communication in everything you, you make, um, uh, convincing students to uh, work on uh, research projects, uh, really communicate and uh, reach out to the community. Most of our staff are Arabs at the moment um, with international backgrounds. So most of us kind of studied somewhere else in Europe or United States. And I think this experience is very important because you can 
we have a lot to catch up and you, you can bridge, you can translate uh, your knowledge, the knowledge you, you kind of accumulated through years into the regional and the local context. Did you, uh, did, I mean, just to go back to this, this notion of local and regional and the difference between the two, I mean, you're, you said you're, all your faculty, well, most of them are Arabs, and that includes you, of course, yeah. um, but you're also not Egyptian and you're Syrian, and yeah. there's quite a difference in culture. There are, there are overlaps, but there are differences. How do you, do you find that interesting? Do you find challenges with that? Uh, in the beginning, yes, it was a kind of a challenge also for students to get used to, to you coming from like different backgrounds. Uh, they didn't understand my dialect in the beginning, so I really needed to adapt my dialect into uh, Egyptian. I needed to learn Egyptian. But uh, now it's become actually uh, better. They also become more interested in what's happening in other countries, you know, other Arab countries like uh, um, and we have, for example, colleagues from Jordan, Ahmed, uh, we have Bahia from uh, Beirut. So it's all these kind of, in a way, it's, it's, it's a kind of, uh, I always tell them, it's kind of, we are like Iftahia Simpson, you know? <laughs> you know, like uh, this kind of team coming from different uh, Arabic backgrounds, we have different dialects, especially when we meet, and then suddenly it's, yeah, it's, it's quite good, actually, because mm. we... Um, and I think our, our students experiencing that. We have also some Arab students, like uh, Syrian students starting to, to come, uh, students from Yemen, Libya. Mm. So it's quite, they're not a lot. The majority are Egyptians, but uh, we also have like some Arab students represented in our classes. So when I was in primary school, I used to have a friend, Maria Arnaud. And I used to go to her place to play, and I used to run around there, the living room. And I entered her father's uh, atelier once, and I was like, I don't know, what is this place? Like, he had his tools, you know, his hanging on the wall and a lot of posters. And I didn't understand what actually your, what, what is, what's your father doing? You know, like, what does he do? I didn't understand like the, I don't know if he called himself a designer back then. Maybe he called himself an artist or I don't know exactly. And he was also a very intimidating man. He was older. He was older than my own father. He, he was like, um, he married really in a, a later age or older age. So he was very intimidating. So I was also scared of him. I couldn't really ask him anything but I was asking Maria what what are these tools so I think it made an impression and I was surprised to know that he was a teacher at the art university and uh, uh, a lot of my teacher were his students so it's, it's, I connected the dots really later mm -hmm. um, but yeah it was it's really interesting memory do you have a design memory or something like an anti-design memory when I was 12 years old, I had to do a presentation about what I wanted to be when I grow up. And I remember very clearly speaking, I was preparing it with my parents and I was totally convinced that I would be a graphic designer. And this is something like, I, I don't know, I don't know where this came from. I was just fascinated by, I was really into drawing and drawing details. And I remember one day we had to make a miniature painting in, in the painting class and I was freaking out about this because it was just the most amazing thing to make a miniature painting like of a still life which is quite like 
okay, random. But um, I was really into details and spending time and this kind of thing. So I thought like this will be a good career opportunity. Yeah. Did you need to also to draw those biology uh, murals? Because we had also that assignment that we need to, all the illustration in the biology book, we need to yeah. uh, draw them on a in a bigger scale and put them in the class so the teacher could use them to explain the class. Yeah. So that actually was my favorite so part. Free labor it's free for labor. the teacher. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I remember also drawing maps of Africa, for example, with yeah. all the countries that we had to reproduce all of the maps ourselves, like in our workbook or whatever. Yeah, this was like such a thrill. This was the just the best. Lack of educational resources. <laughs> so. Well, you talked about something the other night when we were t sitting together. You talked about these impressive murals that were in your school. Yeah. And we were talking about the, the unknown illustrator and this mosaic. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I found them fascinating. They sound like, you know, like socialist propaganda kind of thing. Yeah, it was exactly like uh, I was uh, I went to a public school. So um, we had big murals everywhere about uh, Hafez Assad. And um, he, he was always uh, in the middle. And around him, there is a, a different people representing different um, professions. So you have the... Jindi, the, the the military, the the uh, farmer, uh, the um, worker in um, you know um, different um, I don't know uh, fabrics. I don't know. It's 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 it was like kind of representation of society, very communist vibe. But in every public school, you had one or two huge murals. I never I was fascinated by them because they were very co colorful. Uh, beautiful, actually, but I never know who who made them. Actually, I wanted to go back to visit those buildings to track. Maybe there is a signature of the maker, but uh, that was very very nice. Uh, of course, uh, regardless the political message and uh, what's, um, I was always fascinated by them. Yeah. My question to you is: It's so lovely to listen to your talk and your experiences, like from beginning in different countries and then meeting in Holland, my favorite country, personally. <laughs> and I, I, I hear from your talks. You know, I, I like to hear more what your experiences of being outside of your own culture and this idea of conquering your own stereotypes of other cultures, but then also explaining your culture to other people because they have stereotypes about where you come from yeah so i think um the two of us have been based in the netherlands for a while and got quite used to how we're perceived in that context um so whether that be more exotic less exotic um and sort of the expectation as well that you should speak from your own experience of your culture um, within the Netherlands and present art, design, et cetera, that comes with that baggage. And what was quite refreshing for us is to be in a different context, not a necessarily better context, but a different context being in the States where we did a residency in, two, in uh, 2014. We spent three months in, in Manhattan and in Brooklyn, and we went there to find out what we could about an area called Little Syria, um, which was uh, set up or founded in the 1800s um, in Manhattan and was a Syrian community, 
at that time um, and also was a sort of first stopping point where people uh, lived and, and started a community there. After that, they spread throughout the United States. But for us being in in uh, Brooklyn and Manhattan during this period, we also experienced, um, also through doing the research a bit as well, but just personally being there, meeting people, meeting curators during this residency and talking to them about our background, is that we were received slightly differently. And that's also to do with the different colonial history, I think, in the United States, um, and also the fact that everybody who lives there is foreign and coming from everywhere. And just because you look a certain way doesn't really mean that you, you know, have to be a certain way. So that was sort of a refreshing experience that you don't get sort of questioned or put in a in a box, or maybe you just get put in a different box. But this kind of shift in how you're perceived was really nice to experience and really influenced this new project or project we still continue to work on called The New World. Um, episode one of The New World became a, a video piece and a video installation. And we've shown that video at several um, film festivals globally now, um, Rotterdam Film Festival and also a Korean Film Festival and many other film festivals, which has been really fantastic that it's also traveled. Many people were able to to connect to that. I think in our work that is really a priority, but it also was really great to experience that personally being there for that period and also drove us to work in an archive in uh, Washington, D.C., where we could be able to access documents and publications which were made during that early migration period so that we could try and understand how people were perceived and how they also wrote about themselves. And that was largely writing in Arabic as well about their own experiences, creating daily newspapers. Um, yeah, so that we, we arrived at this, the archive um, and this was the first project that we worked with, right? Uh, yeah, in relation to archives and working in archives. So it was a whole uh, new experience for us to return one year later when we got a residency to to do that archival research in Washington, D.C. Um, at the American National American Museum. Um, and inside the National American Museum is the Alexa Neff collection. So that is a relatively small collection and not very much uh, worked with actually collection. So it was really great. And they also wanted us to be there so that we could uh, create a sort of accessible link to this archive in particular. And then we started with that residency in 2015, 16, and returned back to the States three times actually to, to work on that project. How was it for you, this experience? I mean, it's called Little Syria and you're Syrian. Oh, no, it's not the Syria of Syria today, but it's a different, it's a bigger Syria in a way. Yeah, it was it was mind blowing to be honest, because in a way we we learned about it. We learned about it like as we call it Mahjar, you know. And uh, we we only or me personally, I cannot really um, speak um, on behalf of other people. Like I knew the writers, the famous poets, but I didn't know that it was a community. I didn't know that it was a neighborhood. I didn't know um, how these kind the personal stories. So for us to work in an archive and to meet all these kind of amazing people who lived through generations in the United States to witness what they established or what they achieved to uh, discover how was their also relationship 
not only to their new new home, new land, but also how was their relationship with home, like where they come from, how did they um, continue this relationship, what they thought about it, especially in a period like um, if you're talking about late 1800 until 1970, for example, that was like after 1970, the migration policy changed also. The the how they reacted and how they um, they were influenced also by political changes in the region and how they thought about it. For example, it, I was amazed to know that they were against um, the colonial border. They were against uh, um, different. Th they were also politically engaged and they tried also to have um, their own political contribution. Um, and they traveled back home and tried to to communicate that. Uh, it was very amazing how they thought about their identity as Arab. So we discovered, uh, for example, that they've been perceived also as a kind of very exotic, uh, especially in the beginning of the um, 1900s. Um, they didn't also have those kind of differences when it comes to religion. So we we um, we find out that, for example, there were performing groups coming from a Christian background, but they were going to American villages to perform how actually um, people in the Middle East celebrate Ramadan and mm -hmm. celebrate, um, for example, a Muslim feasts. Uh, so they 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 were. They didn't have any problem with that. Uh, they introduced, of course, different kind of um, like Oriental dance, uh, Arabic language, Arabic poetry. Uh, Afifa Karam, she was like um, writing uh, novels in Arabic, publishing in Al Huda. She established the first feminist newspaper. It's called The New World. And it was published in Arabic. But Afifa Karam also used to publish in Al Huda. And she was encouraged by the Karzil brothers. So actually, they uh, encouraged her to write. Uh, she also published many novels in Arabic uh, addressing a child marriage. So she was like uh, trying to communicate through romantic um, stories about how a woman should not be married in a very early age. She was also addressing um, religious men and uh, the community back home that they should consider those kind of um, acts. So she was very um, engaged as a woman. Um, we also met Adla Khaddaj, a singer. We made also like a film about her. So the, the, the first, so we decided that we, because we, we, we found many stories and many examples. So we decided like through our practice, we are going to focus each time on one story um, through research, like find out what's the best way to bring the story, sometimes through video, film, uh, installation, publication, uh, how we tried also to, um, link the archival material with a new kind of way to for storytelling through video and uh, also kind of new images songs exactly reenacting the songs um so the first uh, movie talks about amir and adla khaddaj they are a lebanese um singer they used to work in jerusalem in the izat al-quds 
they worked there for five years and then they decided to move to the United States. That was in 47. So actually it's a very important uh, moment in Arabic history, especially like Nekbe or Philistine. And then um, through them and through their um, um, their material, like photographs and even the letters uh, that they were receiving from friends and family, we could also know what happened in 1948 from their perspective, from their network, not the already like existing narrative about what happened. Um, so th the first movie was about them and. Um, we tried to introduce them as those like couple who toured the United States to introduce Jazal uh, singing. They were like uh, singing Jazal and performing for Arab, but also American uh, people. So that was amazing kind of um, examples of how like simple family um, find um, their um, place and they practice their art in, in the United States. One of the interesting things that came out of this archival project was um, the amount of really strong females um, who were in the archive um, or who we came across through through the documents and the photographs and everything that we found. After that, we were convinced that we need to create our own archives as well. Uh, maybe it will not make sense now, Maybe it will make sense in 10 years, 20 years, who knows. Uh, but I think um, it shifted this idea that archives should be um, the work of institutions or historian or the government sometimes. No, I think um, creatives, designers or even artists, they could also contribute to that because we could... Um, we see things differently. We draw different connections. Um, we ask different questions as well. You talked about uh, the archive being important to your work. Would you like your work to end up in an archive? Because it's also a bit collecting history and narrative that is not official and not always told in this way. Yeah, like uh, at the moment, like all the video works we are producing has been preserved by an institution in the Netherlands, Lima Institution. So in a way, like, yeah, you make something and it's significant or it's different. So those kind of institution, they, they want to collect all what you make, kind of creating your own legacy somehow. So yes, it's very important. Uh, it's a kind of also support because at the moment we are, we are busy creating. We are not so much busy documenting what we are doing. So it's, it's amazing that we have this kind of support from those kind of institutions. What kind of an institution is Lima? It's um, a media art um, archive, actually, um, based in the Netherlands. And they happened to see one of our uh, video work and they contacted us. And um, now we just, they also help us distribute the work. So whatever we get invitation to film festival, it go through them. So um, we've talked uh, a little bit about all the work you do and I'm sure we did not cover everything, but I get a sense of the kind of process that you go through and the kind of thinking and what you, what you think is really important. Um, do you have a final word for closing off this wonderful discussion? Um, well, we've been now working together 10 years, uh, working on self-initiated projects, uh, research. Our priority has always been with research. So we work on themes that we find interesting. We dive into them. We approach archives. We approach different kinds of resources. 
whether that be interviews or whatever to find out um, or to get where we want to go. And then we work on how to create narratives from that and how to distribute those. And what is really exciting is that uh, recently we also get approached by, uh, let's say, clients, This in this particular case from the cultural sector, where they recognize that that approach is something that they would also like to have on board for their festival or big event. And that uh, we get asked to sort of... Um, well, which could also be slightly problematic to kind of replicate the way of, of doing things. Um, but I think what they're after is really an approach. So that is an indicator that a more research-orientated approach is actually thought of as a valuable asset. And this is coming from the cultural sector in the Middle East. So this is something which I think is exciting and does stand testament to the fact that this is a growing approach, a growing way of doing things and also is growing in the way it's being recognized. And that it also adds value, I think, to an event or to a publication or whatever that might be, that as a designer, you're not only just putting together the content and wrapping it in a beautiful package, but you're also part of sculpting what that is and how it is perceived and how meaning is created through that. Like um, it could be like a project by itself, so it's not kind of only in in for example an identity that you could recognize uh, or you could use just to label other things, but it could be a project by its own. Um, we've been asked to do like identities, visual identities, but also like for example in Cairo to to create. Um, concept to activate for example neighborhoods or to activate um, um, like um, relations between the institution and the community or to uh, introduce people to something new or a new experience or a new project hap happening in their neighborhood so then you see that there is kind of acknowledgement that designers could help or our approach in research could help because it's um it's working because you do you do research you know exactly what people want uh you talk to them you work with them so we work with people we don't work for people and this is changing like clients institutions they start to uh, acknowledge that you cannot really design something for people you need to design with them and this is i think great this you sound like, so do you believe this is the future of graphic design that is no longer a service, but is something, it's no longer also based on a specific um, technique. So it's not yeah. just print because you work with film, print, with music, with kind of multidisciplinary platforms and with people. So can we say this is hopefully the future of graphic design? Yes. Yeah. For sure. For you it is. Yes, for, for us it's like uh, what we do now, but I think this is the future. Yes, agree. Okay, let's have a drink. <laughs> Thank you for listening. This was Hut Chronicles, design stories from the Arab world. 